0: On this week's episode of the Horror Pod Class, we are joined by one of our very favorite horror authors, John Langan. John and Tyler have a really smart discussion about Larry Fessenden's 1995 vampire movie Habit, and I just try to keep up. Stay tuned!
1: Welcome to the Junior Year Episode 3 of the Horror Class. My name is Tyler, and I am the Editor-in-Chief of Signal Horizon and a teacher at a local high school here in Kansas City, Missouri. Signal Horizon is the go-to place for smart genre programming. And for all of our coverage, please check out SignalHorizon.com. I am joined tonight by our co-host and book editor of Signal Horizon, Mike. What's going on, Mike.
0: Not much, man. Usually I'm busy rewatching every episode of Rick and Morty, but Tyler convinced me to put a pause on that tonight. So we are joined because we are joined by a super special guest. Now, I don't know if he's a Rick and Morty fan, but I do know he's a Stoker Award
2: recipient. John Langen. John, how are you doing? I'm doing very well, thanks. And I'm, I'm a big Rick and Morty fan. Yay. Yes! Yes!
0: <laughs>
1: So, uh, usually our first, uh, segment here on the show is to kind of talk about what we are reading and watching and excited about. So they care the the audience cares very little about what we are into. John, what, uh, what are you most excited about?
2: Uh, I'm excited about what you're excited about. <laughs> well, I'm excited um, about John Langit, So that's great. <laughs> I'm excited about myself. Um, I uh uh my goodness a lot of things um it um first off I, I should say officially thank you for for having me on for for this I'm really I'm excited to be here and I'm really looking forward to to talking about um uh to discussing uh, Larry Fessenden's habit with you guys because I think it's a, a terrific movie and and uh, there's a lot to say about it and I I'm really intrigued with the approach that that you guys have have shared with me for for thinking about it um, and in terms of stuff um, that I'm I'm watching and reading and excited about now, um I uh I I <laughs> I just started I fell asleep last night <laughs> watching uh and that's no reflection on the film. It was I was really tired. Uh watching a Korean movie called the uh the, the translated title was The Priest's Exorcism, uh which Gemma Files had recommended. Ooh, cool. And um it uh yeah, it's it's uh um a a Korean Catholic, I I guess you would say, take on on the exorcism narrative, so I'm really interested to see um, to see where that's gonna where that's gonna go. Um, I'm reading it; it seems um, a million different books right now, but um, among them, uh, Brian Hauser's uh, novel uh, *Memento Mori*, which is a, a kind of a lost film uh, book. I mentioned Gemma Files, and there's there's a kind of um, they're, they're different kinds of lost film narratives, but they're, they're in that same neck of the woods. And Brian's, um, is, is about a, um, a film that may have a connection to, uh, to Robert Chambers, The King in Yellow, but oh, cool. he writes the book, um, he writes the book as if it is like an academic study of this or, or academic account, I, I guess, a nonfiction book. And, and so it's, it does some really, really brilliant things. And I, I, um, I really enjoy that. Um, I have Sherry Priest's new one, The Toll. Um, and that, uh, I hope to get to sometime in the next, uh, in the next couple of days. And, um, and I'm, I'm, you know, uh, I'm looking at a book now, um, just started reading a book called the spectacle of the void by, by David peak, um, which is another one of these, these kind of slender, um, theoretical approaches to, to horror. He seems to draw from what I can tell um a lot on Laird Barron and 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 that sort of cosmic horror thing. So I'm quite interested to see what uh what he has to say. Very good.
1: Well, it sounds like uh maybe Memento Mori is playing a little bit with form. I haven't read it, but it sounds like Yeah, uh, it's
2: definitely it's definitely doing some formal interesting formal stuff.
1: Interesting. So like when when I think of your work, I think uh, you it seems like you have a lot of fun with you know, writing in a non-traditional style, you know, writing that kind of, uh, new form type of short story. Is that, uh, I don't know, is that some kinship that you find to Memento Mori? Is that part of the reason why it appeals to you so much?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I definitely reading Brian's book, I'm like, oh yeah, this is absolutely in my wheelhouse. You know, this is, um, I'm, I'm always fascinated when, when someone can take, um, or, or, or bring together, I guess I, I would say, um, a, a different narrative approach, um, and the material of, of horror and, um, whether it's, um, I don't, I don't, know that you see it. That's an interesting question. Whether you've seen it too much in, in film, I guess, you know, the found footage thing was that at, at one point when the Blair witch project came out, you know, that was just so astonishing. Yeah. Um, I know that there's, um, and I always forget the name of it. There was a, a movie that, that, that came out roughly the same time and, and that was also kind of found footagey, but it, it, um, and I'm sorry, I, I, I apologize to the filmmakers because I quite enjoy it. Uh, I, I quite enjoyed that film. But Blair Witch for me was, was very much uh, a real technical kind of, of innovation in, in horror filmmaking. Um and I don't, um, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure. I, I suppose, um, uh, what's his name? Panos, is it Panos Cosmotos, the guy oh, who did yeah. Mandy? Yes. I mean, Mandy and, and also Beyond the Black Rainbow. Those two, I, I think, are also trying to do formally different things with, with their narratives. Is, is Mandy? I think Mandy. I, I I'll call it a horror story. Yeah, whether it yeah, is probably. You know, but, why not? There's a huge chainsaw in it. What else? could? We yeah. Do? Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's a lot of dead people. And yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. There's Nicholas Cage. Come on.
1: Yeah. I think that's a, it's only, it's only fair. And that thing. So did you, did you like Mandy?
2: Yeah. Actually, I enjoyed it a lot. Man, and I it's was, so
1: um, strange. It's, it is, yeah. it is unlike anything else. So,
2: Yeah. And I think that's, you know, I, I think in, in, um, in film, in, in, uh, in, in literature, um, you know, one of the things that, that I guess I respond to is, is the presence of a, of a kind of individual vision, you know, where, and, you know, what you see in, 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 in films is very dramatic, obviously. It's like, like the style is, it's all there, it's all in your face. But I, I think that there were, you know, I think Larry Fessenden has also a very particular vision, but it, it's realized in in a in a different a different narrative approach, but a um, different stylistic approach. I mean, but I, I think that there's something um, really cool when when you that the, that happens when you you see somebody who who kind of you know is 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 taking what they're doing seriously. Maybe that's the best way to to put it. Um, and and yeah, Panos stuff. I mean, he's taking it oh, seriously. Yeah. I mean, you may not like it. You may be like, "This is terrible. <laughs> this is junk." But but you you have to give the guy credit for the I think like the integrity of his vision.
1: Oh yeah, like it's a uh, unabashedly it is. Uh, it's a big swing, you know. Like it is not.
2: Yeah, absolutely. He's, he's swinging for the yes, bleachers. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. it's not like
1: yeah. I'm going to dip my toes in this. And it in I think maybe that passion is why so many people are really into it, you know, like, uh, from kind of all walks. Uh, I liked it. Uh, but it is so strange that it's hard for me to like get beyond the strangeness, but that's also part of the reason why, like, I don't know, maybe Mike's more into Thomas Ligotti than I am or like, uh, like, you know, Mike was talking to me about head when I was like 15 years old. So it's like, you know, I was like, ah, I don't know what that is, but it sounds uh, scary and uh, I don't think I'd like it. So, right.
2: yeah,
1: I totally dig it.
2: So, uh, you yeah, know, somebody said to me that, that the the way to approach and it might have actually might have been Laird Barron um, said to me that, that he yeah this sounds like something Laird would say that that his take on Mandy is that Nicholas Cage is basically like a sort of dormant god or or a sort of sleeping god you know he's 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 out there in the wilderness and he's he's cutting down trees and that sort of, but like he and 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 what happens over the course of the of the movie is he's awakened okay. um and to terrible terrible effect uh for for everybody uh everybody who crosses yeah. him
1: yeah know? yeah oh I totally yeah, I think that's a great. Interpretation.
2: Yeah, because he says he says at the end, right when he when he when he has his climactic confrontation with uh, the the priestly the, the cult leader, you know, I am your god now. You know that that it's it's not like like it's not just uh, what would you say like Cage overdoing it or something. No, it's it's he's having his um, I'm not apotheosis, maybe is that the word? Um, he he is he's sort of entering into his sure. godhood, you know, and, and um, And I, yeah, I like that. I I like that reading of the film myself. Yeah. uh,
1: I think that's great. Well, I think, uh, as much as I could make an entire, you know, hour and a half out of just listening to what John Langan thinks about Mandy, (laughs) that may be, Hey, we might have you on next season and we'll talk about that. That sounds great. I love it. Okay. All right. (laughs) Uh, we'll move on to dark corners of the web. Mike, uh, Do you see what we have for Dark Corners of the Web? I think it's pretty fantastic. Dark, 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 dark corners corners
0: of the web. Yeah, our Dark Corners of the Web this week is uh, The Underground Economy by John Langan. You can find it for free on uh, NightmareMagazine.com. If you've never checked out any of John's work, just head on over there. Free to read, and then you can come back and get some more. Um, So that story is um, dedicated to Joel Lane which I think is very, is, is very interesting. A, um, an author that I really, really like. And, uh, I gotta, I I gotta, I gotta tell you something, John. So I'm on this, uh, this kick with the, uh, undertow books. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, it's like the new, the new classics collection, right? So the first Mm -hmm. one I just got in the mail, uh, Lydia Rucker, the moon will look strange. The second one yep, is yep. Joel Lane and the third one. So I hear is
2: the fisherman. Is that true? You, you have heard correctly. Yes. Yes. It's a great, it, it's a, a great and, and unexpected honor to, to, you know, to, to ask her or to be asked to, to be included in that. Um, and especially alongside those books. Um, I didn't, I didn't know Joel um, terribly well. Um, and I, I, it's funny, you know, um, we, we connected with each other, um, not long before he died a year or two on LinkedIn. Right. And, uh, and I've, I've no idea why I use LinkedIn. It's just like one more, like I just try, I'm just trying to add more and more people to it because it just sort of amuses me, you know? And, um, and, but Joel and I connected and he was like, oh, Hey, good to see you. You know, what's going on. And I was always going to write back to him. I was always going to say, oh, here's, you know, and I just never did. Um, and then it was too late. And, and that's, uh, that's a gigantic regret because I, I think, um, you know, his, his short fiction, um, is brilliant. Um, I haven't gotten to his novels. Um, I have, I have the three of them, I, I think that were published. Um, and he never finished, he, he, was, he was never able to, to complete and revise and edit his nonfiction work, um, into, uh, he was, he was going to put it together, um, in a book, I think it was going to be called *The Spectacular Darkness*, um, but Tartarus went ahead and and collected what was there anyway. Um, the hardcover is kind of pricey, but the ebook is like seven bucks, um, and I was I was quite thrilled when I saw that they'd done that. And and so Joel was a really astute kind of theorist of the of the genres as, as well, and he, he really. A, a sort of a theorist through his, his readings of particular writers. So he, he did a big couple of essays. Um, I, I think still really major essays on Ramsey Campbell. Um, and I, I and, I, and I should say that I'm not sure I agreed with everything Joel had to say, but, but he, he sort of thought about, you know, he he read, like say in Ramsey's case, he read his, all of his stuff. He, he synthesized, he put all of it together and he was like, okay, here's how I see the the first part of Ramsey's career, and then here's where I see the the more recent part of Ramsey's career, and um, yeah, he was he to, to lose him um, feels in in some ways as as time goes by like more and more profound, more and more of a loss. At the same time, what he did um, in books like The Lost District um, was just amazing. You know, that was a book that I read, and it reminded me very much in its effect on me of, of, um, of Straub's ghost story, by which I mean the first time I read ghost story, the first time I finished it, I was like, I don't know, 14 or 15 or something. And I finished it. And I was like, I'm, I, am i am I think I missed about half of that book. Like, I don't think <laughs> I understood, but like, it didn't make me angry or anything. I was just like, that's so cool. There's like, I can, I can reread it. There's so much more. And that was how I felt about the lost district was, was, um, You know i i read um i read those stories and i was like these are great i don't understand a lot of what's going on here but these are terrific um yeah i i um i'm very i'm i'm happy that 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 undertow is is doing the the nice addition um and um and yeah joel is one of those writers whose whose work i really um i i i respect and admire and i celebrate and i i hope um Um, I I hope by doing something like this, you know, to to help it in in my tiny way to, to reach readers and to remain in print.
1: No, I, I look forward to seeing the edition. And I think making those connections is important. And I mean, there have been a number of your short stories that have left me the same way that like, Oh my gosh, I need to go back and reread that because I'm sure there is something else going on. And in fact, uh Mike and I will have a conversation about it and I will say did you catch this and he'll be like oh no and then and you know I'm sure he's he's probably a better reader than I am so he'll uh, he'll have a few more of those than I will but yeah I mean I think that's a mark of a good writer is that there are always new things to pick up on a second reading
2: yeah, I mean, Nabokov, uh, Nabokov says that literature is that which we yeah. are always rereading. And I, I think there's some truth to that. Uh, I think that's a yeah. good way to think about it. Some things you can consume once and you don't need to reread them, except maybe just for the pleasure of the familiar. And that's yeah. that's totally fine. Um, that's my hamburger example, you know, that, that a, a Big Mac is never going to be any better than it was the last time you had it. But yeah. sometimes that's okay. That's come you know, that's what you want, the comfort of the familiar. But if you want the real taste experience, you've got to go to your local place that makes a really, really yep. great hamburger. Yeah,
1: no, and I, I think uh there there are some things that you try once and you're like, I'm glad I tried it, but I, I, you know, like I have zero desire to ever try that again. Case in point, uh Brett Easton Ellis' uh, American Psycho. Like, I'm glad I read it, but I have zero desire to I, you know, I read it at a very specific moment in my life and it was what it was. And I know, you know, like I know exactly what it was. Maybe, you know, maybe I I should reread it because right. it would be different now in my thirties and it would be in my twenties, but you know, whatever I I digress. But yeah, I totally get what you're saying.
2: Now that you've, now that you've gained the <laughs> desire to kill everyone around you. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Is, now that I've know, had,
1: yeah, it, it reads yeah. now that I've got now. business cards, maybe I should go back and revisit, uh, One's obsession with, yeah Well, I think that's great Uh, And I think this would be a a good time to transition into uh, today's essential question Today's essential question will be In what ways does the 1995 Larry Fessenden-directed movie Habit reflect the theories of Mark Fisher? Mike, you want to describe how the podcast will work?
0: The podcast goes in three acts First, we're going to talk about the theory. In this case, uh, Mark Fisher and his theories on kind of pop culture and whatnots. Then we're going to move on to discuss the movie, which is really cool. And I hadn't seen before this and uh, I loved. And three, we're going to go see how the movie handles the theory or how the theory applies back to the movie.
1: I think that's great. Well, let's uh – before we get anywhere, let's ring the spoiler bell, because uh, you never know when a spoiler might pop up. And granted, this movie was uh, you know, released in 1995, so hopefully those that want to see it should see it. But, but to be fair, Mike, you hadn't seen this movie yet? I had not, no. Yeah, so ring that spoiler bell, just in case. Okay, so John, when we have a guest on the show, we always like them to... Pick the movie and then think some about some theory or some philosophy or some ideas that they think really speak to them, uh, at least in the context of the movie. And you were the first one to to mention Mark Fisher. Before I get to kind of my notes on on Fisher's theories on horror and pop culture, what what made you speak, you know, what spoke to you so powerfully about Mark Fisher in relation to, to uh, Habit?
2: Well, I, I think in general, um, I, I, I'm interested in the idea that, that Fisher, um, like, like David Peake, is, is trying to do something new. Um, a lot of discussion of, of horror tends to go back to um, Freud's essay on the uncanny, um, or the Unheimlich, or um, uh, or Love a Lovecraft's essay on, on supernatural horror and literature, um, and um, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but I also think that there are a lot of interesting things that have been done since that time um, uh, what Stephen King does in, in Don's Macabre say is really interesting. And it's something that, um, for whatever reason that that book doesn't seem to be taken as seriously as, as I think it should be. Um, certainly not as seriously as, as the Freud essay is say. Um, and I, I think that, um, someone like Mark Fisher say, um, is, is, um, who, who sadly passed away. Um, I, I think it was the, Last year, or the year before last, but but he was engaged in some really interesting stuff, in, in terms of trying to to think through new ways to to approach um, the material of the fantastic, um, um, and so I, I think that um, obviously not every theory works for every text, um, or works as well for every text, um, and sometimes the only way to find that out is is to apply it, you know, to to see well what happens if we read. If we read this text in light of of this theory, um, so I I think that um, I, I think that that Fisher's theory is is interesting to um, is interesting to think about. I, I as I was reviewing it for the for the podcast tonight, I I thought, oh man, you know, there are some issues and in, in terms of I, I I might have with him in terms of terminology, in terms of weird and eerie and and whatever, but we can talk a little bit about that and uh, as we go and it's, it's not a major, it's not a, it's not a major issue.
1: Okay. Very good. Well, I think the, the first kind of concept that Mark Fisher talks about and it is probably the most exciting to me because I've written some about uh, the concept of toxic nostalgia, which is this thing that seems to have gripped the nation where like We pine for the good old days, despite the fact that the good old days weren't that good, at least for a lot of people, and probably not even good for the people that are pining for them. Right. So I think in a direct response to this toxic nostalgia that we have, Fisher coined a term called hauntology, which uh, in his definition is pining for the futures that never were. And it's a it's a concept that was originated by uh, Jacques Derrida. And as I understand it, and either one of you can totally uh, you know correct me if you think I'm getting it wrong, but it's the idea that we have this like vision of the way the past looked towards the future that we are always trying to replicate and trying to make better than it really was without recognizing that they were probably all as shitty as our present is you know like as as crappy as you know things are in its its current place does that make sense yeah mike what uh what do you think about hauntology
0: yeah i was not as familiar with hauntology um because most of fisher's work that i'm familiar with actually came from uh capitalist realism which I think is another yeah. fantastic concept, completely different, but uh, but really, really interesting. And I had done a lot of reading about that. The a lot of his, I think, a lot of his writing. You're 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 correct in that it, it or, originated with uh, Derrida, and I I really I, I think I really like to go back to Derrida in that he had these really interesting ways to think about. Uh, not just like the past influencing now, but how different different things come into conflict, and maybe like new ways to look at either a text or an idea from outside of itself um I think another really interesting um concept to throw out in addition to the to the hauntology is um aporia, which is um a Greek term that Derrida kinda kind of brought up and kind of kind of reinvigorated a little bit and that's an in an irresolvable puzzle or internal contradiction of of it's like a logical disjunction within a text an argument a theory or whatever and at that that impasse or that puzzlement normally we try to get around that we try to find an answer but derrida says that we really should embrace that not knowing that being in kind of this superpositional state, maybe between two extremes. So whether that be, you know, uh, capitalism and communism, male and female, student-pupil, equality, inequality—that's what a lot of his work was was about. And there's a particularly interesting, um, interesting article in um, his book *Hauntology* about um, how he analyzes really ambiguous endings. Fisher does in both Memento and Inception. And I just found mm-hmm. that just unbelievably just brilliant because he, he points out that in Memento, like there's two kind of readings of the movie that you can make, but that both of them are mutually exclusive to each other and neither, and both are mutually are, and both are have problems with the rules that it, it's already set out. It's basically this, this puzzle that you can never resolve. And, uh, and, and to see that in, in art and in life, I think is really kind of reinvigorating when you think about how so much of our stuff is like either a uh, a, a prequel or a sequel or a retelling of this or that. And or that, a
1: pastiche or yeah, whatever. E-
0: exactly, exactly. And that there's all this kind of new stuff that you can come up with. So, that, so that's Aporia. Um, and, and when we're talking about exactly like like that the pastiche or trying to reinvigorate an older idea um John i I think that there's two of your stories that just do that beautifully beautifully and that's Technicolor and uh am I gonna pronounce this right Hawk?
2: Oh yeah, um yeah, hawk I I guess would be the it's a dutch word so I I think <laughs> <laughs> Nice. Whoa. We feel so much better. Whatever yeah. you say goes. I, I mean, yes. yes, absolutely yes, of course. This is the voice of the author. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Speaking of post-structural theory, you
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah, um so I I love the idea which uh, you know is is kind of specific to Fisher that sometimes it's really difficult to get us out of mindsets right like he is he is consumed by this idea of modernity and how uh, conceptions of modernity like prevent us from growth or different thoughts and at least the the way i read his reading of horror generally is because of its kind of transgressive nature is it can operate outside of some of the rules of modernity in that it can do so many other things that like mainstream or whatever you want to call it art can't it's not necessarily bound by the same rigid structure so i i i guess my my concept really stems from maybe the idea of liminal spaces john what do you think horror's role plays with the idea of liminal space? Because I think they really go hand in hand. And especially, I think, in a lot of your writing, i I, I can see a lot of those connections.
2: yeah, I, I think I mean, man, there's a there's a uh, I mean, even that the notion of liminal space, i I think it it functions. On, on a lot of different levels. Right. And, and there's, there's a way in which as, as a writer of horror fiction, unless you're Stephen King, and even if you are <laughs> Stephen King, you exist in a liminal space vis-a-vis the literary mainstream and not, not only the, the literary mainstream, but, but vis-a-vis the sort of the, the um, how would you put it? The, the field of, of, um, of genre. Um you're you're kind of a step up from romance fiction um but maybe but maybe not um the romance writer certainly wouldn't feel that way and um but you know like like science fiction and fantasy may argue with one another about who's better but they can both agree that at least they're not Um, hard um and um you know you'll you'll um so, so, so there is a kind of like a sociological, um, if if you will, um, aspect to to the to, to the liminal space that horror occupies, and, and that horror um, and, and a sort of almost a, um, yeah, within the within the 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 culture of uh, of of, um, of genre fiction. At the same time, that space can be a space where you can do really really cool things because who cares. Um, you don't have the pressure of expectations um, that you that you might have if you're trying to sell a story to the New Yorker or, or you know what have you. Um, so so liminal spaces are you know they're, they're they're sort of simultaneously I think spaces of of call it abjection but also spaces of, of kind of radical possibility and, and experimentation. Yeah. Um, I I think um, you know they're they're the spaces obviously that are not part of the the received narrative or, or, or not the received narrative, but, but call it the official narrative, something like that. Um, so you mentioned those people who want to go back to the past, um, their, their past is, is a past, which is full of liminal spaces, right? But it's not, but, but it's not the past. They don't want the past of those liminal spaces. They don't want the, they don't want the past where, um, uh, um, you know, and if if you call them on this, if you if you say, oh, you want to go back to the fifties, well, well, you know, what about civil rights right. or or what about uh, you know, then oh, well, well, we don't want that. We don't we you know we just want the good stuff, right? Um, and um, but the good stuff is is in some ways overshadowed. I mean, there's a, a, a very like a very Derridian notion, right? That, that the, the good space is only made possible by all these liminal spaces, sure. you know, that without those liminal spaces, the good space doesn't really exist. And what frightens mm-hmm. a, a lot of people who want that good space, um, or what they see as the good space is that now they feel like they can't tell their good space from all these other liminal spaces and it freaks them out yeah. and they don't, and that makes them, that makes them feel very uncertain and frightened and, and whatever, Um, I, I think that in, you know, when, when you think about, um, when I, I guess when I think about, um, my horror narratives on the, on the one hand, I'm thinking about liminal spaces, um, in, in terms of aspects of existence, um, quite often manifest in a, in a supernatural, uh, kind of way, um, that, that have been obscure to the characters and that the characters find themselves drawn into and which, um, are, as often as I can make them not part of a, of a familiar framework. Um, so, so I have written a story about a guy who meets the devil. Absolutely. It was, I, I kind of feel like every horror writer should do that. <laughs> um, and I have written stories for, uh, Cthulhu anthologies where if you know, you're Cthulhu, you know, you'll, you'll recognize sure. Oh, that's the go over there, you know? Um, but I'm, I'm trying as much as I can. Um, even in those stories, to, to treat those figures in, in different kinds of ways yeah. to, to write about a, a more liminal, as it were, a, 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 more, um, um, a character of the margins, sure. I, I guess. Um, I think that the, um, the, uh, I think also in, in terms of, um, in terms of style and in what we talked about previously in, in terms of the use of style, Um, and maybe in terms of language and also narrative structure, um, a a lot of the, the, my influences run on, on the one hand, um, as I've, I've gotten older, I've, I've become a big fan of writers. I hated when I was a kid, people like Dickens and Henry James and those kind of, you know, high stylists are, it's funny. We think about them as occupying a central place, especially James, right? We think about him as enter, entering, uh, or as occupying a central place in the in in the canon. But ask how many ask people, you know, <laughs> how many people have actually read James? I mean, everybody reads The Turn of the Screw when you're an undergrad because you have to, um, right? And and because you found out that Mike Flanagan's doing that for season two of his haunting show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, speaking of hauntings, right? Yeah. But But, um, the other things, the, the, go ahead.
1: Sorry, not not to step on you, but your, your idea that you take an old concept, but you try to frame it in a, in a liminal way, right? I am reminded of your Werewolf story in Wide Carnivorous Sky, right? I think uh mm-hmm. I'm blanking on the title cuz I'm really bad at all of that. But uh it's called the, the Revel. Yes. Uh the story itself almost feels like you know, like the 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 new thing, right? In 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 being a chef, right? Then the new culinary step is a deconstructed like BLT, right? Where they would put your like right. bacon on the side and your bread on the side and your, your lettuce and your tomato. And you'd be like, eh, it, it feels like a deconstructed werewolf story in that, you know, you, you wanted to take this thing, but give us a different framing agent perhaps, but also, you know, present us a different way to read the story and in that way it doesn't have that kind of romance of uh, a werewolf story and, and what i mean by that is it doesn't have that kind of hauntology that a lot of werewolf pastiche sometimes
2: is does that make sense i think so i, I think so i mean i was i was in and what's interesting to me is is that that story was was more so i think than any other story i've written very influenced by uh, John Barth's work, um, I, I came across uh, "Lost in the Funhouse" uh, when I was an undergraduate, and I, I just I just loved that story, and I, I loved what what Barth did there, um, and and I read read some of Chimera um, as as well, and I, I I loved the way that that he deconstructed these the 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 process of storytelling, and also these these uh, ancient myths, and um, so that was. And you know, I mean, I mean, Barth is is he's doing those um, those books in the the late sixties, early seventies. At, at the same time that the Derrida, at uh, all, are are breaking big, um, and everybody's like, oh my god, look at what's going yeah. on. I'm, I'm honestly not clear. Barth was at. Uh, Johns Hopkins and I, I don't know if he was there when they had the famous seminar that brought all the all the um French uh thinkers over to to talk. I, I kinda think that was, was either sixty four or sixty six and I just don't know if he was there by that point. So like I don't know, you know, I mean I mean but but having said that, I think that a lot of those ideas were, were in the air. Um, you know, you think about um you know, Peter Fonda just died, right? And you watch Easy Rider, and and you know, um, a film like that, which in some ways is it seems like this straightforward road narrative. Also, there, there's there's not only the. Um, the the lsd trip section but but there were flashes uh forward to what's going to happen in the in the narrative so so even there there were there um in in a film like that which was you know geared at, at, at sort of a young hip audience and, and whatever there were experimental things going on with with uh with sure. narrative. yeah well before we get
1: too lost in hauntology i do want to take a moment and then talk about conceptions of the weird and eerie which is the other mm-hmm. kind of big uh concept the big idea that mark fisher brings to the stage and before it's always
0: interesting to hear people talk about because oh, yeah. because this is this is probably the most contentious uh what is weird is probably the most contentious like uh statement we have out there
1: yeah yeah well and like especially if you spell it with a capital w like if you spell it with a lowercase w then you know like it seems like there's a really pleasant uh discussion to be had but when you introduce like the term new to the beginning or old or whatever and they capitalize
0: it or why i I spell it with a y but whatever we're not going to get into that
1: (laughs) (laughs) all right mike mike lives in the liminal space of what uh, the weird definition is
2: Of the why.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I I think before we get to the weird, which is a separate conversation and one that we are going to have, Mark Fisher (laughs) defines the eerie, which I think is interesting. Uh, Oh, actually, he defines the weird as a kind of wrongness, whereas uh, the eerie is a situation in, in which something is there that shouldn't be, or where there is something that should be there that is missing. So, I, like he has a pretty developed definition of what is eerie and one that made total sense to me. I, I and I think maybe when we get into the discussion of the film, I, I think we can see a lot of those concepts. So, what do you two think? You both are probably a little more versed in the subgenre than I am. How would you define Big W weird?
2: I'm going to let Mike, I'm, oh, I'm just going like, to Oh crap. Mike. Yes. You know, you know, well think,
1: done, John. Well done. Yes. Throw, all right.
0: So, so in, in general, right. I think that there's and I more, more to this particular discussion that we'll get into with the, with the movie. I think that there's a lot of like weird and eerie concepts that lose it over time. Like for example, the vampire, right. The got a lot of like Gothic ideas and that they, just kind of lose it and become subsumed within our pop culture, right? I mean, Hotel Transylvania is a movie, right?
1: A, and, a quite you know, popular one. That thing made like $150 quite,
0: million dollars or something. A, a, a quite popular one. But even before that, you know, you had the Adams Family, right? Which was comedy, horror, whatever you want to call it. They just kind of lose their, uh, I don't know, their their weirdness, their eeriness. Um, if you put a vampire in a movie, if you put a werewolf in a movie, there's all of this extra baggage that comes, comes along with it that doesn't make it, that doesn't make it fit anymore. So I think, I think that that's probably more onto the discussion, you know, probably rather than like what, what the literary like kind of genre movement of the, of the weird is. But I, I think, I think that, I think that the weird is trying to, uh, in many different ways kind of rediscover um, that which has been kind of kind of lost from those from those like concepts, and that's what really kind of strikes it as being very different to to me. There's a lot of other stuff about the weird, but I think that's probably more
2: on on topic here. Okay, John, make any sense? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that, um, and, and this is what I was talking about earlier when I when I, I was talking about like. I don't know, sort of confusion in terminology or or whatever, because the way that Fisher, as I understand it, defines the weird, um, seems to me in a lot of ways to describe the way that I think of horror fiction, uh, functioning. You know, he, he talks about the weird as, as involving, um, a kind of collision or a juxtaposition, you bringing two things together that, that, um, should not be together. um, And so, you know, he, he says one of those things kind of has to be for, for the, for the, the weird to, to work the way he, he thinks it, it, it does or, or should one of those things should be kind of normal or recognizable. And then the other thing should be the, you know, strange and, and bizarre and, and what have you. Um, and, and because if it's, if it's, if it's a strange thing coming together with a strange thing, that may be that may be very effective, but but it, it's not the specific kind of effect that he's talking about with the with the weird, and it, it seems to be that when that thing. When when that um, outside thing or, or you know erupts into into what's familiar, when the when the strange erupts into the uh, into the familiar, it often does so in this excessive kind of, of way. Um, he makes reference a few times to uh, uh, Lacan's notion of, of, of jouissance, the 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 pleasure that is that is also painful, mm-hmm. you know, or, or um, which which and that that may have some some relevance to, to habit as well, but. Um, so, and, and then because of this, what happens to us is, is that it causes us to re kind of reconfigure our, our sense of what the world is. We were like, Oh, hold on a second. You know, as it were, vampires exist, you know, like, like now he wants to make the argument. And I don't think I agree with this conclusion that, that therefore the weird, can have like, like at the end of the weird, we can, we can come to like a sort of a new kind of stability where we're like, Oh, all right. Well, we live in a world where vampires exist. Okay. So like we, we understand the world now, you know, as opposed to, um, and not to get too far off, off topic, but I, I think to myself, yeah, but you know, if, if I thought that vampires existed, I would be like, holy cow, well, what else right. exists? You know, what other, what other. So I, I think that, but I think that's because he wants to set that up in distinction to a certain extent to the eerie, which is a much, I, I think in a way, a much more elusive phenomenon. And, and I think that, that, that a lot of the, of the eerie is, um is mood related, mm. right? He talks about, you know, you hear the strange cry of the bird and you're like, <laughs> why is that bird crying um and, you're, and you think about intentionality and agency is the bird like like is it is it a warning yeah you know like 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 or, or is it just just like a bird yeah. you know um and you're right he, he talks about like like the weird scene or, or excuse me the eerie seems to play to our expectations um it it was so quiet. And then the bird, why, where did that bird, I didn't expect a bird or, or I was waiting for the bird and there was no bird. Um, he talks about Stonehenge too. And I think that's actually really fascinating. Um, you know, here's something that is a a human artifact. We, we recognize it as a human artifact, but we don't understand what it is. We, we, We can't come to a conclusive, um, Understanding a, a definite understanding of of what it is, and so that causes us um, that that causes us to to feel um, adrift to a certain extent. We can suppose, oh, it's you know it's aligned to the sun and all this kind of stuff. We can make certain educated guesses, but but we're never going to be able to get it exactly right because of the because we're we're um, cut off from the culture that that produced it. Yeah. Um, I I kind of think that. I think that that a lot of the fiction that's been produced um, both under the auspices of the new weird and, and the weird and the weird Renaissance, I think a a lot of fiction that, that like that kind of weird fiction is actually, it's a lot of what it's striving for is what Fisher would define as the eerie. Um, It's, it's not looking to like, you know, there's no jouissance Uh necessarily. Um, What it's looking for is to make you go, Oh man, that's, that's weird. You know?
1: No, I, I I think that's, I think that's a good analysis of both of those terms. And I love the idea of Stonehenge because it it really does exist almost like it's torn out of a time that we don't know and then placed here. And as a result, uh, it feels particularly in pop culture, it feels like both that it belongs, but also that we have no idea why. And that within itself gives yeah. us that deeply unsettling feeling, you know, like, it is a thing that we all talk about, but we all have no idea what it does, you know, like I, or or you know why it was used or whatever. Yeah, I think I think that's really interesting. And now I think would be a good time to at least uh, turn our attention, at least for a moment, to uh, the Larry Fessenden movie, The Habit, because I think it may have something to say about these concepts. But before we get to the application, what do you think? I, I mean, I'm, I'll go first this movie is very much a product of like the mid 1990s. That's also part of the reason why I love it. You know, like it's this uh, kind of like, I, I don't know. It's kind of goofy. Like it has a goofy element about it while at the same time being dark and interesting and having a lot to say about a lot of different topics, but probably what I loved most about it was its portrayal of, what I, what I assume is New York, which is a, like a pre, it feels like a pre Giuliani, New York. It's kind of dirty. It's, it's, uh. it feels dangerous in some elements. It feels dark, you know? And I, I love that. Oh, uh, you know, like almost, probably Mark Fisher is going to gag at this, but, uh, or w- I would, would gag at this, but it, like, it gives me a sense of nostalgia because of that, particular framing of of the film but i absolutely adored it i thought it was really interesting to watch um john why
2: initially did you recommend this film well you know the the habit was a movie that i watched or habit i, I think um anyway it, it was a movie that i watched because of another larry fessenden movie he he made a movie called uh, wendigo mm-hmm. And it was shot um, locally or, or close enough to where I live, up up in the Catskills, and so it received a lot of, of local news coverage. Um, and uh, here's this guy shooting this horror movie in the Catskills, and all this. And so, um, so I, I, you know, for that reason, I wanted to see it, and I, I saw it, and I really liked it. And um, and I'm, I'm asking myself if if I think when I saw have uh, I think when I saw Wendigo. I think it was probably back in the days of, of, uh, video stores. So after I got that, I was like, well, what else has this guy done? And here was this movie habit and, and, um, habit just utterly, um, it just blew me away. I just, I just loved the film. Um, and we, you know, obviously we'll talk about, about why, but I just, um, there were a number of vampire movies that were made around the same, approximately around the same time. Um, one called Nadia, um, and then there was uh, Abel Ferrara's. Um, uh, what was it? The Addiction um, that, that, that treated that, that tried to, to actually even Catherine Bigelow's Near Dark um, that that tried to offer these new takes on the vampire. Um, and um, um, and I actually I'm quite fond of all of the the films, but but Habit is is so kind of relentless. Um, it it just doesn't take anything back. Um, there's there's no there's no redeeming ending. Um, yeah, I, I kinda, yeah, I kind of love that. I kind of love the fact that that it that it it sticks. Um, it 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 sticks to its guns to the very end, and and you're just left at the end going, "What? Wait, hang on." Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, that, to I mean, quote Janet Jackson, "That's the end."
1: Yeah. Well, and what struck me as I think really interesting about this film. Is it is, it doesn't give the audience an easy way out. Well, at the same time I, and I thought about this, especially on the rewatch. I don't know if I would call this movie bleak. It's not, it's got some humor to it. It's got like yeah. that, that general goofiness to it. So it's not like a dirge, right? It's not like, Oh gosh, I have to watch habit again. You know, like I, I, it no, was, an, no. it was an enjoyable experience. And despite an unhappy ending, like it's, it's not torture to get through and, and by torture, I don't mean like watching a bad film, but like, you know, it's not like Requiem for a, a dream, a dream yeah. right. Yeah. Where you're like, Oh God, I never want to watch that movie again. You know, this was, I found I, it upbeat. Yeah. Requiem I mean, it, a dream. oh, oh yeah, you did. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Particularly the ending, right? Mike, you were like, uh-huh, yeah. yeah. I need more of that. But Mike, what did you think about the movie? Did you think it
0: was bleak? Did you think, I I don't don't know. know. So, so look, first off, I love the mid nineties, the early mid nineties. I I just love it. It's one of the last times when you can, uh, and even then it's starting to, uh, starting to break down a little bit to be able to like, put your finger on a time based on what people are wearing, what kind of things are in their house, you, you know that like that kind of stuff nowadays it seems like it's difficult to place anything that's been made in say maybe the last 20 years without extensive use of technology right like oh are they using an iphone that's newer than if they're using a flip phone right but there's not a whole lot of like there's not a whole lot of like you know like um
1: artificial references to
0: Yeah, tell. artificial references. So so there's a little bit of that nostalgia for, you know, for like the mid-90s that I'm kind of that I hey, that I just a- love. I totally everyone love.
1: everyone in this film has a home phone. That was one
2: of the things that I mean, you know.
1: It was like, "Oh shit, they call each other at their houses, you know?" And their home, yeah, no, home-
2: that's true. That's very true.
0: And, and I love I, I love the idea of just trying to get like a different take on a vampire or a different, or, or is it a vampire or you know, that like, 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 like that kind of stuff. I think, I think one of my, um I don't one of my favorite um anthologies is I think it's, I think it's called whispers of, of blood, whispers in blood. Hold on.
1: He's going to pull it oh. off his shelf.
0: A whisper of blood, right? It's a it's an older Ellen Datlow uh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. An- anthology, and uh, it, there's so many different takes on on vampires there, you know. And and there's there's even yeah, I, I don't know if she reached out to Thomas Ligotti or if Thomas Ligotti had previously written it or whatever. It's like you know, oh hey, here's a vampire story by Thomas Ligotti. It's about it's about a dream vampire that um, that kind of kind of haunts a kid, and then uh, by the end he accidentally kills an angel right it's the weirdest thing you can possibly imagine and it is a vampire story and uh i just i i just love that kind of reimagining and recontextual recontextualizing kind of over and over again of 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 these older kind of gothic elements mm-hmm. so
1: okay so question then as we move on to maybe our application of the theory to the movie right is there a relation ship to any of those concepts in the way that we you know in the way of you know, is there any relationship to mark fisher's concepts in this reimagining of our older monsters right because um Larry Fessenden's newest movie that will be released on September 13th, uh, we got a screener copy of, and it's it's definitely a Frankenstein homage, right? But yeah. it, has a lot, it has a lot to say about medicine oh. and a lot to say about post-traumatic stress and some other things. So my question is, is there any, and maybe there isn't, I don't honestly know, is there any relationship to Mark Fisher and this constant reimagining of these classic monsters.
2: I, I think, um, yeah, I, I, I think there is, I, am I'm, I'm so excited about Depraved. I, I can't even, I can't even. It's, it's
1: freaking great.
2: It's yeah, yeah. really, I'm good. really looking forward to it. Um, I, I would, I would, um, at first, you know, it was funny because at first, after I, I had, Completed my rewatch of the movie. Like my first thought was, no, nah, I don't. I don't think so. I don't think Fisher is going to fit for this. But the more I thought about it, the more I thought, no, there were there were some things, um, and and possibly also using the the sort of hauntology ideas um, that there are some kind of interesting, I, I think, applications and intersections, um, and and um, I, I want to say like spoiler alert, but also kind of like like. <laughs> like film nerd alert, because these things are real, like some really specific moments in the, in the film, you know, the, the film begins with, uh, with Sam, who's the character that Larry Fessenden plays, um, in his dead father's apartment. And we'll learn, um, over the course of the movie that his father has been dead about maybe about two months, um, that something happened that his father just kind of like like seem to like sort of lose the will to live or something like that. Like at the very end, he he seems to have died in a sudden and unexpected way. We know that his dad uh, will also find out later that his dad is an archeologist. But at the beginning we see uh, him looking through pictures um, and, and actual photographs, not digital photographs. Um, And some of the pictures are of a a presumably young Sam with a beer in his hand. And that's going to be one of the themes of the movie that he's an alcoholic. Um, but we also see that his father has a beer in his hand as as well. At one point, I think we even see them maybe holding the same beer or passing a beer to one another. And so we get those. And then we also get these pictures that that presumably his father has taken of all of these sites in the ancient world. Um, some of them seem to be ancient temples. Others um, seem to be ancient churches and, and maybe not so, you know, by American standards, ancient churches. But uh, maybe not by European standards. And, and then we see, um, that his father's bed is covered in all these papers, um, stacks of, of papers. Um, and we see a stack of, of national geographics to one side. So it's, it, and we'll find out, but, but I think this is sort of setting up for us visually that his father was a world traveler. His father, we will, as I said, we'll find out was an archeologist. Um, and, and his father was also a drinker, whether he was an alcoholic or not, it's, it's, it's not 100% clear. Um, I think the indications are that he, he probably was. So, what do we know about alcoholism? You know, we, we know that you get it from your parents, you know, and you may get yeah. it from other things as well. But, um, but I, I think that there's also an indication that Anna, the vampire or whatever she is, was also associated with his father. Um, that seems to me a really um, it's it's not clear. It wasn't really clear until I don't know maybe like my third time through, that I was like, wait a minute. (laughs) Yeah. She's associated with the with um uh the, the the movie relentlessly associates her with um statuary throughout new york city yes of a yeah. predatory uh, sort of but a statuary that's rendered in, in in classical roman or greco-roman form of of predatory birds and and dragons and and what have you um so so she's associated with that classical world um and it's interesting that she keeps saying, "I'm not interested in," or she's not keeps saying, but she says it at least once. I'm not interested in the old. I don't care about the past. I'm all about. I'm all about what's what's uh, what's here. Um, his father was interested in the past, right? But so I, I think that where I'm sort of going with this is that. He's received alcoholism from his father. He's also received Anna from his father, as it as it were, and she becomes she she becomes tied up in yeah. in this in this sort of self destructive behavior. You know the the in this addictive uh, kind of of behavior. She's also, I think, she's I guess you could see her as a, as a form of an addict as well. But that's another another thing, I think. But one of the things Fisher talks about when he, he's at pains to try to differentiate his understanding of, uh, or his concept of, of the weird, and I think to a certain extent, uh, the eerie from Freud's notions. And he talks about the way that in Freud, everything always winds up internalized. Everything always winds up like it comes out of you, um, so that you yourself, you're the one who produces the the uncanniness, um, you, your response to sure. the object or whatever. Whereas he wants to say that that the weird comes from the outside in. He wants to um, he wants to think about it that way. So, all of that being said, Sam's condition then you know the alcoholism then and the vampire. Would would both function in that weird way? They they are things that come to him from from outside, um, which he then struggles with um, and 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 tries to struggle uh, against. Um, obviously, this is not to say that that in the film, especially that there is no agency on his part. I think that there is. I think there is some measure of that. But I I think that that I, I think that what um and, and we could think about this a little bit too, if it's true that anna um had a relationship with his father um and that was what killed his father. are there like sort of incestuous overtones to his relationship with her um but you know, yeah and, and I, don't, I don't know what, I don't know what Fisher would do with that, you know,
1: yeah. Well, I I know what
2: Freud would do with
0: with it.
1: Yeah, (laughs) no shit. Yeah. Freud would be all over that. Yeah. Yeah. Like cigars or something. Yeah. yeah. I think that the idea that it it doesn't matter, right? Like in the context of the movie, addiction is addiction, right? So he is an alcoholic. That's one form. Like he's – lured to Anna through sex, which is another type of addiction, right? Uh, the idea that they both essentially come to need blood to survive is yet another form of addiction. And if we're using a lens that Fisher provides, then I return back to that idea of like, uh, yeah, that that we can't escape modernity, you know? It doesn't matter what form the stories are that we're telling, they're the same stories, right? Like he says it in the context of capitalism, that we can't tell a future story without capitalism. But, you know, Fessenden perhaps is making the argument we, we can't tell this particular story without addressing the fact that there are lots of different types of addiction at play with, you know, with
0: Sam and our main characters.
1: I think that, I don't know. I think that's wicked cool. I think that's interesting.
0: So maybe, maybe another, maybe just another way to look at it would be um, that Sam's father, uh, he's very interested in, he takes great comfort in the past, all these monuments of ruined civilizations. And like the idealism, like he wants to pick up the idealism and, and that is good to him, Right and it it just totally that right there totally strikes me as the idea of like the ghost from the past haunts us not from the past but in the present, right
2: so yeah, it's yeah, the, yeah, no, that's really good. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: so it's not so it's not it's not the actual Roman Empire we'll use the Romans right It's not the actual Roman Empire, right It's his version of the Roman Empire that he's brought forward that doesn't have. Oh, you know the gladiatorial games and the slave combat and the emperor that that owned everything. It's probably more like you know the old republic and all these great ideals, which were there was a lot of sh- like really shitty things about the Roman Empire. But Sam's dad doesn't want to think about any of those. He he wants to think about the idealism and that's like you like this old thing comes in and you want to use in the present these old kind of uh, methods to deal with it, right? And I think it's. I think it's beautiful when he, when Sam decides like I've got a vampire problem, right? What's the, (laughs) and, and what's the first thing that you do when you have a vampire problem, right? You get some garlic, right? Uh, And you You rub it on your window. You try to make a steak, you know, you get your crucifix, but those are all the old ways of dealing with this. And it doesn't work. Like, like we have, we get no, uh, um, we get, we get no, like clue that any of the old vampire stuff works against Anna, right? Well, she doesn't. No, that's not
1: true.
2: She doesn't like garlic, right? That's why they go when up the, when to the, the right when the garlic is when he's cooking the garlic when he's got the sort of concentrated garlic. She doesn't like uh, she doesn't like that. Although he makes those the he strings the bulbs on the uh, on the coat hanger and that doesn't really seem to she she just sort of she's not terribly concerned yeah. about that you know and she does ask him to uh, to invite her in. Right, that's a big deal. Yeah, which yeah.
1: Uh, it, not not to start a, a separate tangent here, but I think there's uh, there, there's a lot of this movie that reminded me of Let the Right One In, and uh, that's another movie we talked about on the podcast. But it's it's a, you know kind of a modern day vampire film, but also plays around real loosely with those rules. Yeah, uh, I I think Mike, you're spot on with the idea that we get this this reference to those old civilizations and I'm going to use like the big R romantic vision of the way those, those are right. Like in the, at the beginning of this film, we get big R romantic visions of, of vampires, right? Like she's pretty, uh, attractive. Uh, I mean, androgynous, but very pretty, I would say, uh, Clearly he's broken up with his girlfriend. So like he doesn't have romantic entanglement. So she comes along, she offers him this big sweeping vision of the way a vampire would be right. And underneath a big statue bites him for the first time and sucks his blood. Right. That's certainly strange, but it's only through progressing through the film. Do you realize that like the, the longing for a future that never was, ignores all the shitty parts of like falling in love with a vampire, like the fact that she drains your blood every night and turns you into one yourself. You know, so I I don't know. I think that's I uh, I think that's it's really interesting.
2: Yeah, no, there's something you- there's definitely something with the uh, um because you're 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 right, Mark uh, Mike. I'm sorry that when um uh he's giving the funeral uh. Oration, you know, when he's a sort of memorial service for his dad, he, he, he talks about how well, you know, he was bitter, but he was an idealist. Like he didn't he, he wasn't a defeatist. Right. Um, and, and it's absolutely true that his dad spent, you know, spent his time in the past. Remember, too, he has that vision of his father um, played, interestingly, by Larry Fessenden's real father um, in the uh, in the cemetery when he sees his father looking at him um, and then his father turns his back on him. Um, and and disappears. Um, there's something, and the cemetery itself, right, is is a. It's. Um, I, I mean, how would you? Um, who is it? Um, Bakhtin calls cemeteries. Um, what does he call them? Heterotopias? Is that it? No, chronotopias, a, a place where many different times are made visible. Um, because huh. of all the. Oh, I love that. All the different. Yeah, that's that. interesting. Yeah, all the different tombstones, right? And and so here you are here you are in this place where time is all, is all kind of mixed up, but it's, it certainly is a monumental place, if you will, the kind of place that his father presumably would have been comfortable in, but you know, his father sees him and his father turns his back on him. Is that because his father was like, Oh, you're making the same mistake I did. You know, Mm -hmm. you're, you're, you're falling, you know, she's got you, you know, or, or, um, yeah, yeah, that, that is definitely, I, I think, it's definitely that like the relationship with his father is definitely part of the, the narrative. But, you know, also his own personal past. Remember that um, his friend, is it Nick? His, his significant other, uh, Ray, has, has had a relationship with Sam in the past. And yep. um, and he was abusive. He was he was he was alcoholic and abusive. And which which has to make us wonder if um, I at least make me wonder, I think if if uh, Liza, the most his most recent girlfriend, if that's the reason that things have broken up with them, we know, you know, when when he's helping move stuff, she moving her out of out of the apartment they've shared together, her friends keep giving him these these icy stares um, and he's joking, oh, you know, what's wrong with them? Um, well, you know, after we've watched the movie, I think one of the things we have to ask is: was he, you know, physically abusive? Were they were they aware of that? Um, and is is that part of the reason they're giving him those those looks? So his own his own personal past. Um, it, th- there's more to it, and and more more that's bad to it as as well. Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, I think that was that was my reading initially, and as we've kind of talked through it, yeah, dude. Like, uh, I think at the end of the day, he is not uh, he's not an innocent creature, no. right? Like he, he, he has his own stuff that he has walked through and probably still needs to deal with. And the idea that he tries to blame Anna as a vampire, right? It, it, his his buddy. Nick says, and I, and I kind of drag this quote out, uh, Vampirism is everywhere. It's hiding in our hearts. It's at the bottom of a bottle or a needle in your arm. It's 500 channels of insepid cultural drivel, the advertising and gluttony draining us of our ability to think. But believe me, it is not to be found embodied in Anna. She probably belongs to one of those blood-sucking cults, but she sure shit is not a vampire. I I love <laughs> like he wants to externalize all his problems and his buddy Nick is like, nah, man, your biggest problem is at the bottom of that bottle, you know? And I, I don't know, I, it seems like a good dude, <laughs> you know, like he's telling you what you need to well, hear. He is. I mean, I mean not- Nick is
2: the one who breaks in at the end to try to save him at the, at the very last, uh, at the very last moment, you know, he's the one who's, uh-huh. um, and, and he's, he's, I think he's the one. Uh, on the street who's, who's telling everybody call 911, you know, call an ambulance, even though it's, it's clearly too late. Yeah. Yeah. So,
0: so I think, I think that that kind of begs the question that, and John, I want to know your, your view on this. Cause you're really smart. And Tyler, I want to, want to know your view. Cause you're <laughs> kind of, kind of smart, I guess. Okay, um, I'll take kind of. All right. All right. So, so I read on a blog ghostdiaries.com this uh, this blogger finds VH- old VHSs and watches them and just kind of talks about them and blogs about them or whatever. Do you think, and I got this idea from them, do you think, link in the show notes, that there are multiple interpretations to this movie? Do you think that it's open to maybe Anna's not a vampire?
1: Oh, shit. Uh, in that it's because, just his- be-
0: Because, because yeah. Okay. It's just, it's just him, you know, maybe he's dating somebody named Anna, but the whole vampire thing is something that is coming out of, coming out of some sort of either mental illness or addiction or, or something. It's all internal to Sam. Right. And we can, we can look at, he is an alcoholic. He's a cutter. Right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Okay.
0: He has, he has this, this wound that won't heal. Maybe it came from a bite maybe it didn't there's um so i don't she disappears at the end and it doesn't seem like the ending i think is 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 very is very odd because anna disappears right and then is it is it is it ray is it um his 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 friend's girlfriend that's always dressed that, that by the way is always dressed in old clothing like from the 20s she, um,
1: yes, 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 yes.
0: She had she had previously made out with Anna, right? Right. right. And she and and while while Nick is like, oh hey, call nine one one. She doesn't say like, hey, that girl that I made out with just disappeared in front of my eyes. Right. Yeah.
1: So, I, I think they're okay. You know, whatever. If you wanted to read that, if you wanted to take that reading, I'm sure I I, I would never discount somebody's reading, but like. <laughs> that scene involving the two of them is important in that context because like anna's clearly trying to get with ray and and maybe it's uh you know maybe it's just a sexual way but like there's no male gaze in that scene it's just the two of them right there's just them doing their thing so i wouldn't understand the reading of the movie that was just about our boy sam that would also still include that. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I,
2: that, that was my, I have to, that that was my first thought is is that the scene with the two of them alone lends credence to the idea that, that um, Anna has some type of objective existence outside of Sam's perception. I think um, beyond that, um, the, the, at, uh, at his dad's memorial service, when, uh, when she shows up, um the uh, the guy that he's speaking to and there's that wonderful it's a way wonderful the way that that, that Fessenden does these kinds of things um at first it looks like Liza um, and then it's not it's it's Anna um that the camera, it's um, it. it uh, the, the first shot is is uh, a, a woman walks in, in between uh, Sam and this older guy that he's talking to. And we're looking at the the woman in profile from the right hand side and it's Liza. And then it switches to the left hand side. And and all of a sudden it's Anna and, and it's Anna for the rest of the scene. And that guy then contacts Sam. And, and we never hear uh, we never hear his story. We never hear what what he he's like. Oh, I'd like to talk to you a little bit, you know. About I think he does say I'd like to talk to you about that woman, but um, yeah. we don't know um, we don't know what he wants to say. Um, but he does he does perceive her that that seems to you know. I mean, you can try to get into the argument that well, Sam's making everything up, but at that point, you know, it, it that kind of argument to me starts to lose its its. Um, it becomes more and more tenuous, I guess.
1: Yeah, Man, I, I think that's it, it's interesting. All right.
0: Yeah, okay. It's John Langan versus Ghost Diaries. All right, that's fine. That's fine. Okay, cool, uh, cool. I just, I just, I just thought it was interesting. And I gotta, I gotta tell you, uh, that was the first. That was the first time in this movie where I sat up and I was like, that change of of, of Anna from like. I had to like rewind. I I like sat up and I'm like, there is something more going on in this movie than I originally thought. Yeah. Like that that, was just
1: a silly vampire movie. Yeah. There's something else. Yeah.
0: Yeah. But I was really, I was really into the multiple interpretations because I had read this Fisher thing about uh, uh, Memento and uh, um, and Inception. And the idea that like we, uh, you can have a work that lives in like this kind of superimposed states is it super super it's position a, or whatever yeah. that's yeah not one and it's not the other and it's not even in between and I don't know I was trying to apply this here and yeah I think you're right I think it doesn't totally work but ghost Diaries yeah. blog yeah
1: hey, so uh we still love you good effort. we'll keep a no, good effort a,
0: yeah we'll, we'll keep a running count
1: uh, Ghost Diaries zero uh, John Langan one so oh, Why
2: would you now Now they're going to be for me Yeah that's great That's great yeah uh,
1: Well you want to know who else um, Probably didn't Have a, a universal uh, Criticism Of this film or at least one that we may Not necessarily agree with it's our favorite uh, Student in the back of the room In John has graciously offered to read his review of this film. John, will
2: you read this anonymous Amazon user's one-star review of this film? I uh, I would be uh, I would be happy and or perhaps ashamed to, um, <laughs> but uh, all right, anonymous Amazon user, this is uh, this is your moment, uh, your moment in the sun. <laughs> So let's see. Um, I won't give you a ridiculous voice. I'll just read what, uh, what you had to say. Uh, what I liked best about this movie is when it finally ended. I believe that this movie could be used by the CIA to torture anyone who was charged with a serious crime. The characters are not likable. The atmosphere is gray and ugly. But the worst part about the habit is it moves so slow. This could be the most forgettable movie I have ever seen in my life. All right, look, huh. anonymous one-star person. The CIA doesn't torture anyone who's charged with a serious crime. That isn't how it works. <laughs> they, they, they just torture
0: random people that haven't been charged job that's their job go back
2: you need to go back to civics class okay <laughs> <laughs> the most forgettable movie I've ever seen how would you know if you've forgotten other movies this <laughs> <laughs> I think talk about aporia I'm sorry anonymous you uh, uh you're out I like it I like it so so I think
0: i I think that the the Criticism that the movie is slow, right? Is I think I think movies in general move a little bit faster nowadays. Yeah, right. I mean, especially big budget movies and everything. Mm -hmm. Um, But gosh, I mean, that's just I I think think of so many movies that are that are that start out slow and then and then end up awesome and uh, that
1: well, that uh, I I was um, a movie that. uh, At least I made a connection in my my head to this was um well it was David Cronenberg right that did the original Rabbit and I I don't know there are moments of both of these films that seemed kind of similar in tone and definitely in pacing you know and like yes anonymous Amazon user you know felt like it was a little slow i guess i understand that criticism i just think it is uh like it's just a storytelling thing right like if you want to take your time telling a story then it may you know it may not be like freaking Hobbes and lock or whatever the new
0: fast and furious
1: movie is you
0: know like it's it's just not going to be that right and oh my gosh Hobbes and lock too fast too furious I would I would pay money to see Hobbes and
2: yes. Locke.
1: The social yeah. contract. Yeah, yeah, it would
2: be great. <laughs> who, are they, who are they fighting? That's the question. That's who's their foe gonna be. I have to think a little bit about
1: Yeah. I don't know. Some guy, some guy named or Russo. Like the Pope I don't know. We we'll can like figure that, that out. You know? I like it. I like it. Yeah. Well, John, uh, thanks so much for being on tonight. Take us a mo uh, take a moment and tell us what projects you have coming up
2: or where people can find more of your stuff, uh, you know, on the internet. Uh, sure. Um, thank you again for having me. I'm glad I got a chance to to talk about this. Um, there's actually there's a, there's a, a great um, four movie uh, collection of, of Larry Fessenden's work um, of his of those four early horror movies, including Habit and uh, Wendigo and uh, The Last Winter, which is a kind of early kind of like, like proto, um, eco horror movie, I guess, or climate change horror movie. So, um, I think it's about like 40 bucks on Amazon. So it's money. Well, uh, well spent. Um, I, um, I think, um, in terms of my own stuff, I have a, a collection out uh, now called Sephira and other betrayals, uh, from hippocampus press, which came out, um, in, uh, in April, um, it has an introduction by Paul Tremblay. So, that alone, you know how Stephen <laughs> King feels about Paul Tremblay. So, for that reason alone, the Paul Tremblay completists out there should want to buy my book. Um, it, uh,
1: I, I should also say it is fan freaking fantastic. Thank, uh, thank
2: you. It is uh, remarkable. So, yeah. I know he's talking about Paul's introduction, but that's fine. <laughs> uh, you know, but um, uh, so, yeah, that's how I have. Um, uh, tomorrow, I think it is um, August uh, 20th, as I'm, as we're recording this, um, uh, Ellen Datlow's new anthology of ghost stories, Echoes, uh, is released. And that's gigantic. It's like 800 pages. And I have a, a very long novella uh, in there called Natalia, Queen of the Hungry Dogs. Um, so that's... Uh, um, and, and it actually has some connections to, um, to the title story in, in, uh, in Sephira. You don't, you don't need to have re have read either one, but, um, it's, uh, if, if you have, if, if you read both of them, um, you'll find out some stuff. Uh, I'll be at Necronomicon this, uh, this coming weekend. Um, I'm hopeful, um, my fourth collection of stories will be out in 2020. Um, I think, uh, from Horde Press, um, it's uh, it's uh, going to be called Children of the Fang uh, and other genealogies. And um Stephen Graham Jones has written the introduction for uh for that. So uh that's what's on the uh that's what's on the horizon. Hey, that's that is amazing.
1: I'm am so stoked about the n- the new collection. Thank you. Uh, do you have Do you have a Twitter handle,
2: or are you out there on the social yeah, media yeah, at I'm, all? Uh, on, on Facebook under under John Langen, um, I'm in Twitter. If you just type in John Langen, you'll find me. It's Mr. Gaunt is is my Twitter uh, my Twitter handle. Um, if you look for Mr. Gaunt um, on on WordPress, you can find my blog, which I I update kind of randomly. <laughs>
1: Sounds great. Perfect. All right. Uh, Mike, where can they catch more of your stuff?
0: You can find all my stuff over at Signal Horizon. You can follow me on Goodreads, or you can send me an email, mike at signalhorizon.com. I love email. It feels so much more personal.
1: (laughs) I bet. You can uh, find me Tyler Unsel, probably reading some John Langan. But when I'm not doing that, uh, you can find me on Twitter at ty unsel, or you can find me curating cool stuff on our Horror Podcast Facebook group. We'd love to hear from you there. If you would like to uh, keep us, uh, you know, doing what we're doing here on the Horror Podcast, mosey on over to our Patreon page, give us a dollar or two. We're all poor teachers here, trying to keep the lights on, the computers running and uh you know the microphone's on so thanks so much for joining us next week we are going to be talking about the 2016 film uh by brian bertino the monster and uh the concept of addiction thanks so much for joining us and class dismissed